good to see you guys tonight. Whew. I don't know how I'm going to rebound from that. We'll try. My mission for you tonight is to rewire what you believe about you. We don't have problems of behavior. We don't have problems of habits. We actually have problems of wrong thinking. Every area of my life that has had struggle, I've found that it's been an area that's been under the influence of a lie. And what I want to challenge you guys tonight is actually to embark with me on a journey to redefine who you are to see you as God sees you. Because if you can change what you think about yourself, you're going to change the outcomes of your life. If you've been here the past few weeks, I've been stretching many of you guys. I've received your emails and text messages about some conventional theologies that we have, specifically that God controls everything and also that God's will always comes to pass. Two prevalent beliefs in the faith that are horribly wrong. I don't have time to go into all of it tonight, I promise you. Um, They're good messages, you can look them up on the podcast. But Satan uses these two lies, that God controls everything and God's will always comes to pass in order to render believers ineffective through inaction and also to numb you to the pains of the world. Because if you believe that God's will always comes to pass and that God controls every detail, then you are confronted with the reality that your life has zero influence on the world. If you believe everything is preordained and controlled by God, then Your choice of whether left or right doesn't really matter, does it? And when I came to this revelation of my theology, that God doesn't control everything, God's will doesn't always come to pass, it was this huge letdown for me. In dialoguing with some of you guys about these thoughts and theology, like sometimes it's this like security blanket that's been ripped from you. And I understand that feeling, but here is the source of that feeling, is that if you feel let down by those realities, it's because you don't understand who you are and who God made you to be. When you realize how incredible your transformation is, it's undeniable that God has purposed you and empowered you and equipped you to change the world. Here's the thing is that Satan doesn't want you to figure out these details I'm sharing with you tonight. Because if you all of a sudden begin to believe about you what God believes about you, suddenly you're going to be wise to his schemes. Suddenly you're going to see the world differently and his plans will be under attack. I'm going to take you through step by step here through five truths that will fundamentally transform what you believe about you. The first is this, is that you are a new creation. Did you know that you're not the same person you were before you got saved? It's like, oh, that's a nice Bible verse. No, you're not the same person you were before you got saved. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. What did I just say? (laughs) Creature. Creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Sadly, our world is filled with Christians whose single expectation of their faith is that they're not going to hell, but they're going to heaven. 
that the highest aspiration of their salvation is just that they have this get out of hell free card with their life. You see, the gospel message isn't that sinners somehow escape into heaven. The gospel message is that believers become transformed and united with God. Your highest calling is not to escape hell. The highest calling you have is to be reconciled with God and to shape the world with God. And the transformation of who you are on earth is every bit as significant as where you go after you die. In fact, many of the benefits awaiting for us in heaven are determined by how you live on this earth. And who we have been transformed to be should influence every single detail of how we will live. Did you know that if we are a new creation, which basically means never seen before, the concept here is prototype, never seen before. If that's really the truth, then after you get saved, blaming human nature is no longer a valid excuse. You can't say like, oh, it's just human nature, I guess. People use human nature all the time to explain failure and sin and compromise. I was really good at that, by the way. Especially when I was like in my early 20s, struggling with lust and pornography. It's just human nature to sin. It's just every man's battle. Everyone does it, right? I mean, like, we begin to allow our compromises to have justification when we cite human nature. But after salvation, human nature doesn't apply to you anymore. Your sinful nature was crucified at the cross and no longer exists because you are that new creation. Now, just because we're a new creation doesn't mean that it's impossible to sin. Can I get an amen? Surely we are. It's just that citing human nature as this uncontrollable force is not a valid excuse because it says that who you used to be is still enslaving you after God has redeemed you. Before you were saved, sin was out of your control. After you're saved, with your new nature, sin is within your control. It says that sin shall not be master over you. Why do so many believers live unchanged lives? Like, their lives are actually either the same or many times worse after they get saved as before they get saved. You're like, if that's the transformation of God, I don't think it's doing a very good job of selling me on this faith thing. The reason is because if people are not changed after salvation, it's because they don't believe they are changed. You can receive salvation and you can secure eternal life, but that doesn't mean that you're required to live differently if you don't believe that you are changed. Proverbs 23, 7 says, So as a man believes within himself, so he is. If you don't believe you're transformed, you won't live like you are. If you think salvation is just getting the fire insurance, your life won't look any different. But when you believe that you are fundamentally transformed, a brand new creation, that the old self is gone, then you now have the founding ingredients to build a different life. 
In other words, you cannot enjoy the fruits of something you do not believe in. Unless you believe you're a brand new creation, your life will very much look exactly the same. And I realized that in my early 20s that I would remain stuck in the old habits of the old nature for as long as I believed I belonged to the old nature. And somewhere along the lines, I don't know who it was, but they told me, like, when you operate from the old nature, you're going to continue to do the behaviors of the old nature. And I remember I was challenged to memorize the scripture, 1 Corinthians 6.12, that I will not be mastered by anything. Is that this lie of, like, calling ourselves addicts. It's like it's giving it so much power. It's like I'm a new creation. There's nothing that has mastery over me. And I've been proud to say that since my early 20s, it's never been a struggle again because I'm operating from that new identity. And you might be asking yourself, well, how do we define ourselves by our new identity? Well, you have to kind of know what it is. Like a new nature, well, what does that mean? Because you're not defined by being a sinner saved by grace. You're defined by your new nature. Well, what is your new nature? It's righteousness. You want to know what your new nature is? Righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. When you got saved, you became the righteousness of God. I don't care what you did, where you've been, how you even feel this moment. The truth is, you are the righteousness of God. Well, I don't feel it. You're not a feeler, you're a believer. Don't take it up with me. You can take it up with the scriptures. You are the righteousness of God. I I could just end the message right there and just repeat that over and over and over again. It's a huge title, but it's time that we as the body begin to act like we truly are. Because the word righteous means in the state he ought to be. It means approved by God. You are in the state you ought to be, approved by God in your righteousness. You're the righteousness of God. And here's the best part, is that it happens, it transform, he transforms us, right? He transformed us into righteousness, meaning that we didn't contribute to it. And if we did not contribute to developing our righteous identity, it means that there's nothing you can do to make you unrighteous either. If you had no hand in creating your righteous identity, it means no matter how hard you try, God's not going to let you take it away either. That doesn't mean that you can't make a mess, because you can still certainly make a mess of your life. But God has transformed you into his righteousness, and he's not about to let it go. Because if we could alter our righteous identity or maintain it, or develop it, or reduce it, it would mean that our righteousness is based on works and performance. The only way to allow you to never earn or strive for your righteousness is to give it to you because God made you righteous and to say, you don't have a hand in changing this. Did you notice before Jesus went and was tempted, before he did a single miracle, performed a single baptism, said anything really in his ministry, before his public ministry started, God sent the Holy Spirit down as a dove and said, this is my son whom I well pleased. Without doing a single righteous act. A 
single miracle. But we need that righteousness, that identity of God's righteousness to inform and determine our behavior. Because what we do is we let our behavior tell us who we are. Instead, you need to let your identity inform your behavior. Better said, don't let your behavior declare who you are. Let who you are determine your behavior. In other words, from identity flows behavior. And we have it backwards. Say, well, I did that and therefore I am. From identity flows behavior. Let me tell you something. If you identify yourself only as a sinner saved by grace, you'll continue to sin needing more grace because that's your identity. It takes zero faith. Listen to me. It takes zero faith to declare yourself a sinner saved by grace. It takes faith to believe that you're the righteousness of God and that every sin from now on is completely out of character from your identity. That takes faith. It takes faith to believe that you're something that you don't even see yourself because what you see in yourself is what you've done. And God says, I see who you are. I've declared you're my righteousness and need to determine your behavior from who I say you are. But who we are demands that we live differently. If you have a struggle with your behavior, you need to ask yourself, does someone who is the righteousness of God do this thing? And if they don't, then don't do it. Would you ever expect to see a king rummaging around the garbage for something to eat? Would you ever see a king on the side of the street panhandling? Would you ever see a king being like, I don't know if I'm like, you know, have the authority to rule. Like, you, like these things are completely out of place for us. And the same parallel applies to us in our righteous identity is that actually, here's the truth, is that sin, it's not even about not doing bad things. It's sin is actually beneath you. It's not a sin so bad and so evil. It's actually, sin is completely irrelevant to who God has made you to be. It's beneath you. Compromise is beneath you. Anxiety is beneath you. Insecurity is beneath you. It's unbecoming for someone who's the righteousness of God to behave any of those ways. It's completely out of character and downright silly. You might be saying, well, out of character. Well, what do you mean? What does it mean to be out of character? Well, don't you know who you are? Like, anyone? No? No? Okay. Here's who you are. You are a priest king. When I say you're operating out of character, I'm referencing a very specific idea. Who are you in the Bible as it relates to who you are in Christ? It says you've been made a priest king. 1 Peter 2.9 tells us this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possessions so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous life. Look at yourself and your life and ask yourself, would a priest king do these things? It's a really, really, really big deal that you are called a priest king. You're going to be saying, boring, moving on. Here's what that means. You are walking in the fulfillment of God's greatest plan for God's people. 
In Exodus 19, God goes to the nation of Israel and is like, I want to make you guys a kingdom of priests. And they're like, no way, give us rules. God's like, are you sure? Give us rules. His plan and design was to walk face to face with his people and have a kingdom of priests. But the nation said, we don't want any part of that. We just want rules to follow. Tell us what to do and what not to do. Tell us what to eat and not to eat. And so for hundreds of years, instead of having a nation and a kingdom of priests, they had one priest who once a year would go on behalf of all the nation to make atonements for all the people. And so as the scriptures tell us that we are a kingdom of priests, this is the the fulfillment of God's greatest plan ever for people. That you've been made a priest, meaning that you are reconciling people to God. Every single thing you touch, you bring the presence of God. Every single thing you do, God's presence is with you. You are reconciling the world to him in Christ Jesus. So that's the priest aspect. The king's side is someone who has rulership and authority. God didn't save you to make you powerless. He saved you to make you powerful. And you have direct access to God to be powerful and to rule. And notice that in our times now, part of the fulfillment is that the nation, the people, don't need an intermediary. That he dwells within you. And you have a territory to rule. You've been given authority. And so the question for us in our lives is, are we living as priest kings? Are we still living like a lowly sinner saved by grace? But start behaving like God has designed you to be. Like, what does it mean, though, to live as a priest king? Like, these are new terms, and I get, I get new ideas that are coming at you. But it means that you have rulership. Rulership. Are you saying we're designed to reign? Absolutely. You bet your righteous butt you are. You're not, your highest calling is not just to simply go to heaven. Your highest calling is not simply to go to church. And your highest calling is not simply to tithe. Your highest calling is to be who God has empowered you to be. The best way to glorify God is not to have great attendance or to be absent from sin. It's actually to be the full embodiment of what he had planned and designed for you. And part of that is to be the priest king. And and to be a priest king means that you have people that you're reconciling to God. People, things, the world, music, whatever it is that you are actively pursuing the ransoming of creation back to the Father. And second, that you are reigning because you're the king. So the next is that you have been commissioned to reign. It says those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. You can't have a king without a kingdom. It's kind of like having a race car driver without a car. If you're a priest king, that means you have a kingdom and you are designed to reign. But I don't know about you, but that's not how I look around and see most Christians living their lives. What is it with that all these Christians, maybe it's just the current era we're in, that are like waiting for God to come rescue them? But there's like all this like, God, just come quickly, you know? Like we're begging for God to come to earth and rescue us. But you're not stuck on earth waiting to be rescued. 
You're on this earth and you're supposed to reign in power and authority. But Christians get so discouraged by the events of the earth when they are the exact ones who are empowered to change it. Why do Christians worry the most, it seems like, when they are empowered to the greatest degree to influence the events of earth? And instead of standing up like God's empowered children, they put their head in the sand and cry out for Christ's return. Let me tell you something. When Christ comes back again, it's not for a rescue mission. He's not like going into like Jack Bauer mode, like trying to like rescue somebody. When Christ does his final return, do you know what the imagery is? It's a wedding. We are the bride of Christ. He's the bridegroom. Christ's final return for us. Though there is a battle, there's a judgment, all those things. But for us, his return for us, it's of a wedding. You are the bride of Christ. And it's a celebration But right now, it almost seems like the bride of Christ is locked in a closet, crying, afraid of the dark. And I don't know if the groom comes when the bride is, like, terrified. I actually know something a little too about the bride not being ready yet. On our wedding, (laughs) our wedding day, I go up, the pastor's there, we go up to the top, the organist starts playing, Dun, da da dun, da da dun. The doors are still closed. <laughs> Just looking around. Dun, da da dun, da da dun. It's no bride. Dun, da da dun, da da dun. The best man leans over and is like, runaway bride. <laughs> Normally, I can take a good joke, but at that moment, I'm not feeling any humor coming through. Look back at the back doors of these little two panes of glass. He's like scurrying back and forth. And opens the doors, and there's my bride. Dun, 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 dun. You know, nothing is. Whew. I tell you what, waiting for a bride to be ready is not fun. But Christ's return, it's not this rescue mission. It's coming in celebration. So don't long for Christ's return as far as it's he's rescuing us, but stand up and rule for what God has trusted to you. We ought to be careful, like, while we long for heaven because it's home, we have to stop longing for the next life when the life that we are currently in has the most impact for us. Heaven's great, don't don't get me wrong, like I'm pumped about heaven. But I'm also cognizant that my greatest impact in eternity is in this time. And don't forget that the big inheritance, your eternal life in heaven actually has benefits that are created by how you live now. People are like, I just want to like get to heaven and like escape all this bad stuff, you know. And in fact, how we live is going to determine the rewards that God gives for us for eternity. I don't know what those look like. I just know I want some. Here's the mind-blowing thing. Is after you finish this life, ruling in power and authority as a priest king, the righteousness of God, a new creation, you're going to stand before God. It's a judgment seat. And we think it's going to be all the account of all the things we did wrong. Well, the word says he doesn't remember our sins. 
But he gives out rewards. And it says, after he's done giving rewards, God praises you. If that doesn't make your mind break, I don't know what does. The fact that you can live a life on earth and stand before God and then God praises you. I imagine that's going to be awesome. But very few of us live for making choices now. But we are called to rule. And so don't act as a Christian who's completely helpless. You've been given a mandate to reign. So start reigning and stop complaining. You've been entrusted with a sphere of influence. I don't care who you are, what you have. You have a kingdom. You have a sphere of influence. You have things that have been entrusted to you to rule. How are you guys doing? One more? All right. I'm supposed to reign. Yeah, 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 whatever. Was it something like, I don't know, God gives us keys or something like that? Well, actually, yeah. <laughs> actually, Yes. It says in Matthew 16, 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Translation is you've been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You've been made a priest king, you've been given rulership and you've been given keys to the kingdom. People tend to blame God for when things go wrong. When we're the ones who've been empowered with authority, given the keys of the kingdom. I love when people are like, I've got a lot of questions for God. Someone said that to me today. It's awesome. It's like, he's got a lot of questions for you, you know. (laughs) And we're going to get there and we're going to ask God, why did you let this happen? And God's going to ask us the very same thing. He's like, I gave you all authority. I gave you my spirit. I made my presence dwell within you. I gave you a new nature. I made you the righteousness of me. I gave you the keys of the kingdom. I promise I'll always be with you. So what was your question again? (laughs) But our prayers need to change. Sometimes we pray in the third person, acting like God is completely separate from us. God, would you just move? And we make this whole thing about God moving apart from us. And God's like, we're in this together. God's like, I'll settle this. He's like, we, God co-labors with us. He's called you into partnership with him. He doesn't want to do anything apart from you. And so as we ask God to move, we need to remember that it's God who's empowered us to move. You need to know that in your life, you possess keys for your own breakthrough and for the breakthrough of others. I believe our greatest regret on this earth will be that we completely misunderstood our power and authority while here on earth. That all along, we had the keys of the kingdom in our pockets and we never knew it and we never used them. Christians tend to behave like powerless victims when in reality they have been made powerful rulers. There's no such thing as a Christian victim. You've been made powerful. You've been made a ruler. You've been given these keys. When was the last time you used the keys of the kingdom in your life? You ever think, I didn't even know I had keys until right now. But situations that I am confronted with, I, it, it's hard because it's so 
second nature. We've, we practice it so much to become powerless victims instead of powerful rulers. That we actually need to say, God, you promised me keys, and so I apportion my power and authority for this situation. That you need to know that you have the keys to someone's breakthrough. You have the keys to an innovation that will change this world. You have the keys to a truth that will liberate people. You hold the keys to defeating evil. I love Tara Benning. I'm, gonna, I'm sorry. I just got to like point to this gal. Because she would call me up at random times and have the keys to what I needed in that exact moment. It's like random prophetic words. Like, I have this word. It's like, it's like wrecking me. You know, it's like... How did you do that? Well, she's got keys to the kingdom. Yes. On the janitor ring back there. You don't live in a bubble. You don't live in isolation. You have something for somebody and and somebody has something for you. We all hold the keys to not only this life and the breakthroughs that are available for us, but also the breakthroughs for people still waiting. The truth is God's greatest hindrance on earth is God's own people failing to behave as God's own people. Because they have no idea that they've been made a new creation. They have no idea that they are the righteousness of God. They have no idea that they have been made priest kings. They have no idea that they have been destined to rule. And they have no idea that they have keys to the kingdom. And when you understand all of these things, how can we look at the world and say, God controls everything and I'm just waiting to go to heaven? It is completely incongruent with how the scriptures look at you. And I'm just barely scratching the surface on this. This is only five. I've got 25 more of these. I don't know if I'm going to get through them. I don't like, if this is good, maybe we'll do it again with some more. But if you want to have the most mind-blowing picture of how we're called to partner with God, when we look at how he made us, it is so convicting. I want to take a moment too, and if there's anybody in this room that has wanted to have an established relationship with God that hasn't, this is a great opportunity. If there's not a better sales pitch for being reconciled to God, this is it. And here's the silly thing, is when people offer the invitation to have a relationship with a God, we act like it's like this really embarrassing thing. It's like, no one's asking you about a STD or something. Like, we're like no one look around. Every, like, you know, someone's going to raise their hand, you know. Like, it's, that was awful. I'm really sorry about that. I wish I had a better, spontaneous idea than that. Wow, that was really bad. That was really bad. Here's the thing. You committing your life to God is the greatest thing that could ever happen to you. It says when when someone is reconciled to God, all of heaven erupts with joy. Why are we bowing our heads and closing our eyes and pretending not to look at the hands raised? It's silly. That's not what happens in heaven. God's like, all right, we're going to do an altar call. Everyone, close your eyes. It's unbelievable. And so I just want to, like, put it out there. I think most of you guys here are in the family, but I just want to, like, take the chance. If there's anybody that wants to have a relationship with Jesus that you've never had that commitment, 
Man, would you just jump up and can we all erupt for you with applause? If there's anybody, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. It's the greatest thing ever. Right? Is this your first time? No? All right. All right. Reconciling ourselves to our calling and who God is is the greatest adventure we'll ever be upon. But it's not going to matter a single bit if you have no idea who you are and what you're capable of. Let's stand and pray. So tonight when Eric was talking about, um, Caleb, if you want to come up and, tonight when Eric was talking about uh, behavior, he wasn't talking about all the do's and don'ts. Because whenever we talk about behaving like God's sons and daughters, it's about reigning in authority. The things that come against you. And tonight, if, if you're here and you were like, wow, I don't do any of that. What you find out as you get older and older, and I'm twice as old as most of you, is if you're truly a son or a daughter, God keeps addressing all the layers of lies that we've believed. I've been having some breakthroughs lately that I've never had in my whole life. I have a spiritual father who's 83, and he said to me, I've been asking Jesus, what do I need to know for the next season of my life? That's so inspirational to me. So if you're here tonight and there was anything that made you feel guilty or made you feel small, that's not the heart of Eric's message. That's not how we preach here. It's just you're a son, you're a daughter. Is there anything in your mind that doesn't match that picture? If our prayer team could come up and if you want to just play whatever God gives you on the guitar. We'd love to pray with you tonight if there's anything that we can. And if you can take the lights down a little bit, they're like killing me. Uh, we'd love to pray with you tonight about anything that the enemy has going on. Because uh, he loves to give us thoughts. He loves to try to harass us and torment us. And that's where the spiritual gangster in me comes out. There's a bunch of gangsters like that in this group. When the enemy comes against you with lies, you meet him with truth. You don't worry about how big his lies are because you get to know how big your dad is. Because you have a dad in heaven who's bigger than anything that's going to come against you. So tonight, I just invite you to come up to any of these guys that are standing here. We'd love to pray with you if there's anything that we can pray with you about. You may need friends more than prayer. We do that at the back. And we're as, we have as much fun back there as we do up here because they're both important. Thank you so much for coming. We'll see you next week and we'll be at the Performing Arts. If you want to register for baptism, go to Epic Life Group in Facebook and register there. Thank you so much for coming.